Welcome to Go to Market, a series of discussions with product managers focused on core product skills, career management, and the experiences that have made them successful at companies big and small. I'm Mark, a PM at Google. And I'm Stuart, a PM at Benchling. We started this podcast to learn from people smarter than us, and now we're sharing the insights that we've gathered from talking to other PMs. PM's an exciting job because it gives you such a broad vantage point. Because you sit at the intersection of engineering and business, you get to guide all parts of how the sausage is made. And there is a lot of sausage. There are so many small details to getting products out the door and many things that don't fit into your job description. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a PM who hasn't at some point in their career done some work that wasn't necessarily in the scope of their role. Right, Mark. You don't really get to say, not my job as a PM because you're judged on the success of your product. You have to have a get things done mindset. That mindset prepares you to handle whatever needs to get done, not unlike founding a company. And in this episode, we're talking to Dan Schlosser, also a former Google PM, and now one of the founders of a company called Ambrook. Dan shares insights on how he and his co-founders understood their customer base, identified a need, and worked towards product market fit. Let's get into our discussion with Dan. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Give us the TLDR on your career so far, that career arc. Sure. Uh, So I am uh, the co-founder of Ambrook, a three-person and growing startup that is making farms more profitable and sustainable by building uh, financial tools and back office paperwork automation to help out farmers. And before starting this company, I was a product manager at the New York Times and Google for about three and a half years. Uh, I I was trained in engineering, did a lot of engineering internships, got into product management by way of the Google APM internship where I worked on uh, developer tools in Chrome and then worked on the Firebase team for a year uh, serving developers and then uh, on Google Drive for two and a half years working on both consumer and enterprise. So uh, I've done a bit of, done a bit of everything, uh, consumer, enterprise, developer-focused work, big company, uh, the New York Times, a medium-sized company, and uh, now I'm at a startup. And my roles have bounced around between product and engineering. I've been doing engineering on the side for years, started a design agency uh, when I was in college, and now I'm back uh, as a technical co-founder uh, of a small startup. So. You mentioned New York Times, Google. I've heard of those before. What's Ambrook? Who's your target customer? What kind of problems are you looking to solve? There is this vicious and virtuous cycle opening between sustainability and profitability in agriculture. And uh, my co-founders, Mackenzie Burnett and Jeff Anders and I are starting Ambrook to help farmers become more profitable because a more profitable farm is a more sustainable farm. The, uh, a more profitable farmer will invest in sustainability, uh, invest in their land, invest in uh, better products, more produce more like a diverse offerings. When Jeff and Mackenzie and I started this company, we start we talked to a bunch of farmers. Uh, we'd spend about six months doing customer discovery and trying to figure out what uh, what farmers needed, and we figured out through both our research and conversations that up to 50% of a farmer's time, a farm operator's time is spent doing paperwork. 
And that back office burden is really uh, hurting profitability of farms and it is stopping them from being sustainable. And so we are building tools that help automate the back office and help them with all the financial management that they don't have time to do at the end of the day. And uh, we're starting off by helping them find and apply to farm funding. But uh, over time, we're going to be building a more robust cash flow management suite and farm financial suite for ag. Cool. And so these are like independent farmers who are trying to make it on their own or these larger conglomerates? Our early product has been used by small and big farmers from, you know, four digit to five digit, six digit, seven digit income. Now our target market will probably end up being in the mid market because that's where they have the most complex back office. But um, over time, we see that um, these same problems are had in slightly different forms in enterprise and even in other industries in like that deal with natural resources. Got it. And you mentioned that you started doing customer discovery with your co-founders and that's how you presumably found some problems that you thought that you could solve. Did you go into this with the idea that there were problems that existed that you wanted to dig into more or was this totally greenfield? My co-founder and CEO, Mackenzie, came up with this idea uh, in her graduate research at Stanford. She was actually thinking about a completely different problem, which is how do you put a price on water and could you enable a water trading market in California with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that was recently passed there? And when we looked into building a, a market for water, this regulation and paperwork that is well-intentioned was a, a really big blocker there. And so we followed that thread and found that this is only one example of the kind of uh, paperwork that farmers have to deal with, be it accounting or applying to farm assistance, which ended up being our um, sort of wedge market. And so it sort of started in water and, and we found our uh, focus through about yeah, five to six month customer discovery period, because the advice we got from everyone who had previously been in that field is don't be the startup that comes in thinking that you know what people need and, you know, selling a product without talking to users first. So uh, we took that to heart. Yeah, it's funny how you entered into a market thinking you're going to solve one problem. And then you found how challenging it was even to get to that market. And then you're like, oh, here's a business problem. Totally. It it seems very natural. It happens a lot. Um, do you have any competitors or any even like uh, companies who are solving similar problems or maybe the edges of these problems inadvertently, but they're not targeting it? Absolutely. And, and, and we, we think about businesses in this space that are helping farmers with their back office paperwork. You know, we are in some sense competing with Excel, you know, and, and, and Google Sheets and uh, QuickBooks and, and those those packages that are generalized but are heavily used by farmers today. Um, in there are other companies that are solving this problem, but are taking a more services-oriented approach. So, for example, um, like we're building software that we believe will help folks automate it. We're not planning to 
build up a, a huge team and sort of charge for a, an engagement with you know a dedicated member of staff. That's not our business model. We plan to have a software business model, but largely this, I mean, the space is especially for farm vertical focused software oriented solution to um, cash flow management and farm and farm assistance. It, it's a pretty empty space and, and a pretty underserved market, especially by the tech industry. I think a lot of folks are not that interested in ag tech. You know, it doesn't sound that sexy. And then the ones that are might be building drones or aerial photography that or do aerial photography or IoT solutions, which are are needed, but focus very much on, for example, row crop producers, people who have corn, wheat, soy in in big rows and have a very very automatable problem. You know, people who are sort of able to conform their farming operations to the needs of the technology. We we're less interested in building a sort of agronomic, you know, a, a crop and animal growth related product specifically. We wanted to make software that sort of took all the stuff that people didn't want to deal with, paperwork and making their making sure that their farm finances are in order and solving those problems with software. I mean, it, it's it's a it's very similar to my background at a, now it's called Google Workspace, but on, on Drive where the pitch to enterprises was very much, you don't want to be dealing with passing files back and forth, you know, and dealing with version control. You want to be, you know, running your telecommunications business or whatever. And so that that same angle of like deal with this, we'll deal with the stuff you don't want to deal with, um, we're we're taking here. That makes perfect sense. And I think it's a it's a clever insight that um, your competitor, at least one of your competitors, is a spreadsheet. Uh, because that's what's being used now. And because that really helps you hone in on where kind of is the customer now, even though there isn't, may, be, may not be a direct competitor. Which brings me kind of the next question to talk about general strategy and, and how maybe being a new entrant into a market that maybe doesn't have a direct competitor changes your strategy. And uh, previously you worked on um, on Drive. That was also... Kind of a new entrant, but in a much more established space. Like, how how does you know your position in the market really change your strategy and how you approach kind of what widgets you build and 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 how you design your roadmap? It's almost like what is the what is the most existential threat, right? Like, if you're working on uh, Google Workspace, you're 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 very much number two. If you're in Google Cloud. There's an article every week about how you're in number three, and so you're, there's a lot of eyes on the people ahead of you. And the risk is the 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 market leader just crushes you in in all the competitive sales meetings. And so you try to both take the best features and implement them for yourself because that's what the customers are asking for. Is like I have this checklist of features, and find the thing that differentiates you. Um, try you know in the sort of innovators dilemma style. You know, Google for Google Cloud, it's machine learning. For Google Workspace, it's collaboration and 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 identify identify what will make you differentiated and try and sell to that. When I was at the Times, it, it was a completely different issue because the Times is the biggest media publisher. I mean, the just the staff, engineering, um, the output of the uh, editorial side is 
you know, maybe five times that or more of the next biggest news site. So, you know, we were looking at other news sites, but not from a competitive lens. You know, I was the, I was the product manager for machine learning personalization features at the time. And no other, uh, no other media company is doing machine learning personalization in the way that the Times is doing it. So you can't look to those competitors. You have to look at the Netflix and the Spotify's and say, okay, like how do I be that? And 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 how do I innovate and bring that to news? It's a, it's a very different attitude than when there's a big checklist of features that people want. Yeah. At a startup, you know, your your biggest threat is not you know, some other competitor, I mean, you have to take your competition seriously, but the biggest threat is, you know, it's a startup, it fails, like it, it can fail for a whole number of reasons. So, you know, identifying everything from product market fit, making sure that you're talking to customers, making sure that customers uh, understand what they're paying for and want that. And then making sure that the customers you found that want that thing are like all the other customers that you're planning to sell to. So it, those those concerns end up being pretty different from a competitive yeah. landscape perspective. And, and what's funny is that the New York Times, I mean, you were looking at an entirely different market for like, oh, we should use inspiration from there. And that's where our checklist of future roadmap features is coming from. Because in, you're, the lead, you're the market leader in your space. And so you weren't comparing yourself against what would be your traditional competitors and saying, oh, we need to do that right. thing that our that c- competitive news site did you were able to just really go horizontally to entirely different market to get that inspiration. Yeah. It sounds like Google Drive was actually more of that, looking at what other people are doing, making sure that you're not sort of crossed off the eligibility list because you're lacking in some feature. Right. And then at Ambrook, your biggest threat is just building the wrong thing, solving the wrong problem or in a way that doesn't help customers at all, which doesn't even get you to one. When you're in second or third place and you have customers, they're telling you what they want, which is probably the thing that number one is building. When you're number one, your customers are saying, great, you're number one. And they don't ask for anything, or they ask for things, but they're not asking for the same thing resoundingly, usually. And so you have to just innovate. And the example of looking at, like no New York Times subscriber like writes to the Times and says, hey, I want your app to be more like Spotify. I want it to be more like Netflix. Like, no, that's that's just inspiration for how to make the business stronger, by looking at things that don't necessarily carry over. You can't just build Netflix for news. That's not that's not what the Times is building. They have a fundamentally different problem. And then with Ambrook, the problem is you don't have customers. You know, when you, you start a startup, you have no customers. And so how do you earn customers? No one's asking you for anything because no one's right. talking to you. <laughs> like you're right. no, you're nobody. And very quickly, you know, when we when we got our first users, our first customers, we helped them apply to coronavirus aid, help them find that farm assistance and apply to it. They very quickly told us what they wanted, which was, this is great. You made me, you know, a bunch of money for using, you know, spending five minutes in an app. Can I do this again? What other funding sources were available? And that helped us iterate towards product market fit. So listening to customers is incredibly important, but the uh credibility of the customer changes depending on your position in the market because it very much skews um, how the customer perceives you. Can you expand a bit on that first problem? It sounded like COVID relief funding was the first thing where you felt like you could maybe deliver some value. How do you take that type of insight 
build a solution, and then actually get to a roadmap for a product that takes you beyond just that first thing. When we started Ambrook back in September, the USDA was running the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, which was a big tranche of money allocated by Congress to uh, be distributed to farmers. In our conversations with farmers, we realized that one, people didn't know about this program. And two, if they did and had to apply on their own, it would be really challenging. And they can go into their local office, some of which were closed during COVID, but they, they can talk to people at the USDA to help with their application. But the reality was it wasn't happening. And so we thought, well, maybe we could help people apply for this, you know, build sort of TurboTax for farm assistance. And so we did that. We built a MVP, you know, a, a, an experiment under the thesis that we could help people fill out a profile, fill out their forms. Now, at the beginning, we did all the form filling ourselves manually. We opened Adobe, filled in a bunch of PDFs, and then emailed them to the USDA, helping these farmers apply. And it worked. People loved it. Uh, it turns out in our first uh, first application, 50% of our customers were net new uh, USDA customers. You know, The USDA had never seen them before. Um, and so helping people expose people to these opportunities was huge. And then when it comes to roadmap, we had plenty of ideas, but when you have, you know, 10, a hundred, couple hundred customers and a large percentage of them are saying the same thing, which is like what other funding sources are available it became very clear that the next thing that we had to do was build the funding library because there, there were no, there, there's no good place on the internet. If you're a farmer to say, you know, what uh, grants and loans might I qualify for? So we did a bunch of legwork, made an air table, filled in over 200 uh, fun farm funding opportunities, and then made it into a website, which is now sort of the, the front door to Ambrook is the biggest um, and m most well-organized source of funding opportunities for farmers. And, and, and people loved it. I mean, like it shows both in our numbers, you know, customer acquisition costs and in conversation with farmers that, you know, being able to find all these funding resources is really important. So then the next step becomes, okay, well, what are people going to want? If they discover all these funding programs. Well, obviously it's to apply to them. They actually want to get the money. They don't want to just say, oh, it's nice. I can apply to funding. They want to apply. And so that sort of built out our roadmap is sort of following the customer. And, and, and especially when you're not building for yourself, like I am not a farmer full-time and you know, my brother's a farmer. I have a connection with food and, and sustainability that, makes me want to come to work each day. But if I'm not building for myself, I have to be in conversation with customers constantly. I love how your MVP basically was, we're going to put everything into our own spreadsheet and apply on your behalf. Tell me how you get from that insight to MVP and sort of defining what needs to be in that MVP so that you can get started. When we first found this problem, we were thinking about where we could help with people's paperwork. That was really the 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 first insight is that we could help people with their paperwork. And we thought about apps that help people with their paperwork. TurboTax stood out, you know, this model of there's all these complicated forms, but you ask a bunch of simple questions and like, even I can do my taxes. You know, we, we started out applying that to a problem that wasn't that severe. You know, we were looking at um, not farm assistance paperwork, but uh, conservation uh, compliance paperwork with the um, national, uh, the NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the branch, the USDA. And we talked to people about 
filling in this NRCS paperwork. And, it, and, it, and there was a pain point there. And we designed some software that might help people fill in the conservation paperwork. But ultimately, the market wasn't there. I mean, it was like we talked to some NRCS agents and they said they get, you know, maybe on a good year, they get, you know, 10, 12, 15 applications a year in that office. It's like, oh, never mind. Yeah, don't build not, a business there. Don't build a business there. So, and, and we actually may be able to help with that at some point, but clearly the market need was not there. And, and when we discovered CFAP, the food assistance program for coronavirus, that was when we were like, oh, this is both timely and the incentives are right. It's like every farm in the country should know that there is money allocated from the government. Well, you found a problem. You validated that it is a problem, and then you then you realize, oh, this market isn't very big. But then you found a related one. And go, oh, okay, this problem this is both a problem, and the market is also big. The next thing is, how do we validate that someone's going to pay us to solve this problem? And I'm just thinking about scholarships. There's tons of search engines for scholarships out there. The market is huge. It is a problem finding the scholarships. But I don't know if any of the scholarship websites, and maybe I'm wrong, are making a ton of money or building whole business around this. I think a lot of them are kind of like, you know, government or, you know, how do you go about doing the next phase of, of your um, product market fit and assessing is, is there an actual revenue opportunity here? So I, w- I first of all, I would say that finding scholarships is maybe not something that people would pay for, but applying to scholarships, I don't know. Like if you could guarantee me a certain amount of money, I might pay for that. And, and that was the approach we took as well. Like discovering this program didn't feel like it was something we would charge people for. And, and we didn't test that, but we, we just had the instinct that people probably wouldn't pay to find these programs. But in applying to them, we saw they were already paying because, you know, it's a word of mouth discovery. You know, maybe you go to the coffee shop and, and another farmer in your uh, community tells you about this program. But then if you want to apply to it, you know, imagine working a 12 hour day and then at the end of the day, look up the USDA website and find all the forms to fill out. It's like, no way. Right. So they hire a consultant and there's actually a cottage industry of farm consultants that will help people apply to this kind of paperwork. So ding, so, ding, ding. I guess yeah. the existence of a consultant implies that there is revenue to be earned here. And, you know, that was that was sort of the idea, but we also had to prove it. And so we ran an experiment where we charged a uh, 5% service fee and up to a certain amount. And launched that experiment, had people, you know, put in their credit card with Stripe and everything. We ended up waiving those fees for that program because we were so early and didn't want to write the code. But, you know, we went through all the validation we needed to show that people would be willing to, you know, pay a service fee for being able to apply to this program. Because think about it. You spend five minutes on an app, you're awarded a $20,000 award, and someone says you can keep 19 grand. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. So and, and so that made sense intuitively, but we had to also test it in practice by running that, that experiment where we charged the percentage fee. One of the things you always hear about when you read how to do product management type literature is questions to be answered. That's one of the things that kind of drives you when you think about the MVP. And what I love here is, seems like your first one was, can we find a program that people want us to help them with? Can we get enough interest from people to just use us, even if we just do it for them in a very hacky, low fidelity way on the back end. Your next question then is, can we get people to actually pay for this? What are the other questions uh, that you're trying to answer and how do you come up with those questions? We take the 
attitude every week when we do our weekly planning, we ask the question, what are the biggest risks to the business this week? You know, you, you get to put on this pessimist hat and say, okay, great. Everyone loves to apply to it, but no one would actually pay for it, right? That's the biggest, you know, that's the, that's the fear, that's the risk. And so then we take a de-risking approach of how can we prove that risk to be not a risk. I'm just going to interrupt the phrase, which I love, which is what are the biggest risks to the business this week, which I think really focuses you on what unanswered questions are there or what are we assuming? And it kind of like just makes everybody just not take for granted any information or assumptions that might be made in the business. And I think helps you kind of avoid mistakes as well. It is the most beautiful thing and sometimes most annoying about being a product manager is that you're rewarded for results and pretty much nothing else. No one gets promoted at a big company for writing a bunch of docs. You know, no one gets a raise because they scheduled a bunch of meetings and took really great notes. You you get rewarded for results. And so you get this attitude of like, okay, what is the biggest risk to this result happening? Is it the internal bureaucracy of my big company? <laughs> a lot of the time it is. Uh, is it, you know, some competitor? Maybe. Is it the fact that your customers don't actually want your product? Maybe, you know, and so bringing that attitude to a startup, we have been able to focus on those most important problems. Um, and, and those problems vary week to week. And some of them are more consistent, right? Like uh, we have a, a funding library of you know, 200 programs to apply to funding. And we have a recommendations flow where people can create an account, fill in their profile and get recommendations. Well, a big risk to our business is those recommendations are bad. And so we've been asking that question pretty consistently. Are we getting good recommendations? And there's a lot of different ways to get signal. You know, we're running NPS surveys. We're, you know, examining individual cases to say, okay, if I was this kind of person and I got these results, how would I feel? We're calling people and 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 listening to their feedback. You know, you know folks email us directly, and then we work with them and say, hey, you know, go fill this flow and tell us what you think about the results. So a lot of different ways to de-risk that problem, but it's a, that's been a pretty consistent one. That's a great example. Dan, one of the things that you mentioned was you have a, a cadence around talking about what these problems are, what these risks are. A lot, a lot of big companies with product managers have processes in place, semi-annual planning, public roadmaps that get shared. Tell us about the types of processes that work for you at Ambrook. How do you go from initial idea insight to MVP to delivering to answering some of these questions and keeping that going in a sustainable way? Well, there isn't one good answer to that because the process that we've used has changed as the needs of our company has changed. And I try and be incredibly flexible when it comes to which processes we apply. So right now we are using quarterly OKRs as a sort of you know visionary goal of where are we heading? And uh, weekly planning at the beginning of the week, daily standups, this stuff probably sounds pretty familiar. Uh, we also have a uh, what might be considered a like big company process, which is a product review every Wednesday. But that product review is really a risks review. And so we ask questions on Monday, what are the biggest risks for the business? We plan out our week, you know, here's what I'm going to be doing this week. Okay, we have, probably have to take care of this thing this week. And then on Wednesday, we check in and say, okay, here are the four questions, you know, like, do, you know, are the funding library recommendations strong? Are people paying for a product yet? We ask those, we ask those questions and use them as a recentering to make sure that we don't just waste an entire week on something accidentally. If we do planning wrong on Monday or miss something, 
you know, we so, so we do that recentering on Wednesday and ask ourselves, what is the status of those risks? And so I'll comment on one thing that you had mentioned around um, data. There's all kinds of questions often around, well, you know, how, uh, what does this number mean? Or let's follow up and get more data on this. Um, but there is a real challenge in getting all that data and a cost to that that I think people don't realize or that really doesn't come up. Same as like the cost of process. What is the cost of all this process? Now, data, I think, is probably really important at a startup and that startups have little data. Organizations have a lot of data, but sometimes it's hard to get. What has been your experience in using data and making product management decisions and, and, and you know, where you think it's appropriate and, and where you don't? I did not have a strong instinct here coming into my work at Google. I sort of assumed Google's a data-driven company. You make data-driven decisions, sort of learn that. That's the that's the sort of line that everyone uses. I guess I found that in order to be successful at Google, you had to often ignore the data and make instinct-driven decisions. Especially in a place like Google, which is just full of smart people. If you're in a room with your team, there is enough instinct and experience in that room to make pretty much any decision with the right amount of confidence. So I'm just going to pause and say that at Google you really think that you should not be making as many data-driven decisions as instinct-driven decisions. And it's not just a which should. Which is a big statement. Yeah, it's not just a should. It's That's how actually things happen at Google. Things happen at Google by teams, you know, le- leaders, on, leaders on a team saying, okay, we're going to do this because we think it's the right thing to do, even absent data. And because when you're at Google scale... And especially when you're not in a revenue driving part of the company, and there are parts of the company that are, you know, if you're on ads or search, everything is data driven because it's a revenue engine and you can't afford to mess up. But in every other part of the company that is not revenue driven, the biggest risk is that you spend too much time trying to figure out what to do. And when you have, when you hire enough smart people and Google pays a lot of money, they hire a lot of smart people. There is enough instinct and experience in the room to make a decision that is close enough to right that it is better to just make the decision than think about it. I remember my my manager when I first joined Drive, I had this really hard problem that I was tasked with my my first problem. And he asked me, what level of confidence do you think you need to have in the answer in order to go ahead? I was like, oh, like 90%. I'm going to be 90% confident going in. There's always some nagging feeling, but I'll be 90% confident. I said, no. Try 60%. You know, if you're 60% confident that it's the right decision, it's better to just make it. And I took that to heart and it made things move way faster. We and and we shipped the right thing for the most part. You know, when you have competitors to look at that are doing it right, when you have customers to listen to that are telling you what they want, when you have a bunch of people who have been around for a long time, you know, in the engineering team that know all the issues and you know have these aspirations for the amazing things we could do, you probably shouldn't quadruple check something with data. You should just do it and learn from the signal you get back from the customers. Now, data-driven decision-making doesn't mean that you don't get data from a launch. So we would still you know, read customer feedback. That's data. We would look at the usage metrics. That's data. We would see you know, what parts of the app people are using or not using. That's data. But it's not, here's my 30 slide slide deck with all the data to prove that we should probably go build this feature. It's let's build the feature and see how people use it. I think the comment about 
the cost of getting to 90% confidence and how that can be so expensive compared to occasionally making the wrong call based on maybe a slightly less confident set of data is really insightful because you can very easily fall into this trap of just exploring and exploring and exploring and just like always being in discovery mode and never actually getting to delivery and never being able to sort of cycle around that. Yeah. And it really reflects that most decisions are reversible, right? And I think when you come to building products responsibly, you want to always build the right thing or be able to reverse it if you're building the wrong thing. And in most modern software, you can reverse most things. I think, for example, if you're building a banking app, you can't get it wrong and accidentally like lose people's money permanently. You know, that <laughs> that is not acceptable. And there's no 60% confidence decision that you should make if there's a risk that it will like, you know, delete customers' data, for example. And at Drive, we took that extremely seriously, like, you know, five nines kind of seriously, right? So that's and that's a special kind of problem. But the most problems in product management for modern software companies fall not in that bucket, but in the first bucket where you can easily reverse it if you make it wrong. And usually there's enough smart people in the room that it's close enough to right that you should make it. Yeah. Having a good pulse on the cost of being wrong is always a really important one to have in mind, depending on the industry that you're in. Dan, I want to wrap up by getting into your head a little bit more and how you think about what makes you especially good as a product manager. Do you have a pro tip that you can share? This isn't really related to anything we've talked about, but it's a huge pet peeve of mine, which is people thinking that documents are a way to convince a stakeholder of something. You know, people write, people obsess over their PRDs, right? And it's one thing we teach really early in product management. But in my experience, I have never convinced anyone with a good doc. PRD being like a combination of a spec and rationale and motivation and customers and like, why are we even doing this thing? Exactly. That document is incredibly important in product to be able to bring people together and, and, and build consensus. But the consensus gets built in person and the document sort of locks it in place. I, I, and I actually see this as all, sort, uh, all document-based communication is a way to create a checkpoint. You know, it's a, it's a you can't go further back than here because we've agreed on this. But the process of getting there is one that you do manually with legwork by talking to people, having one-on-one -on -one conversations, working through customer issues directly with that person or, or whatever it happens to be. But I, I see this happen a lot where people have a great idea and so they write it down and they share it with everyone and say, wait, doesn't everyone think of my idea so great? But so my pro tip would be, don't do that. <laughs> Instead, build consensus around your idea yourself the hard way in one-on-ones and then lock it in place with a document. This sounds like write the PRD once you already know what you're going to do. Exactly. <laughs> Love it. We hit on some great topics today and I think you left us with some gems. So we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I've learned a little bit. I'm sure Stuart has too. So thanks for coming on with us today. Really? Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate you having me.